The Man Who Woke Up The historical facts of his life are roughly these. He was born around 563 BC in what is now Nepal, near the Indian border. His full name was Siddhartha Gautama of the Sakyas. Siddhartha was his given name, Gautama, his surname, and Sakya, the name of the clan to which his family belonged. His father was a king. By the standards of the day, his upbringing was luxurious. I wore garments of silk, and my attendants held a white umbrella over me. He appears to have been exceptionally handsome, for there are numerous references to the perfection of his visible body. At 16, he married a neighboring princess, Yasodara, who bore a son whom they called Rahula. Despite all this, there settled over him in his twenties a discontent, which was to lead to a complete break with his worldly estate. The source of his discontent is impounded in the legend of the four passing sites. One of the most celebrated calls to adventure in all world literature. When Siddhartha was born, so the story runs, his father summoned fortune tellers to find out what the future held for his heir. All agreed that this was no usual child. His career, however, was crossed with one basic ambiguity. If he remained with the world, he would unify India and become her greatest conqueror, a universal king. If, on the other hand, he forsook the world, he would become not a world conqueror, but a world redeemer. We know the story. Gautama shaved his head and, clothed in ragged raiment, plunged into the forest in search of enlightenment. His first act was to seek out two of the foremost Hindu masters of the day and pick their minds for their wisdom and their vast tradition. He learned a great deal about Raja Yoga especially, but about Hindu philosophy as well. His next step was to join a band of ascetics and give their way an honest try. This experience taught him the futility of asceticism. He had given this experiment all anyone could, and it had not succeeded, it had not brought enlightenment. But negative experiments carry their own lessons, and in this, asceticism's failure provided Gautama with the first constructive plank for his program, the principle of the middle way between the extremes of asceticism on the one hand and indulgence on the other. Having turned his back on mortification, Gautama devoted the final phase of his quest to a combination of rigorous thought and mystic concentration along the lines of Raja Yoga. One evening, near Gaya in northeast India, south of the present city of Patna, he sat down under a peepul tree that has come to be known as the Bo Tree, short for Bodhi or Enlightenment. The place was later named the immovable spot for tradition reports that the Buddha, sensing that the breakthrough was near, seated himself that epoch-making evening vowing not to arise until enlightenment was his. For a total of 49 days he was lost in rapture, after which his glorious glance opened unto the world. Nearly half a century followed during which the Buddha trudged the dusty path of India until his hair was white, step infirm and body nothing but a burst drum, preaching his ego-shattering, life-redeeming message. He founded an order of monks and nuns. After an arduous ministry of 45 years at the age of 80, 
and around the year 483 BC, the Buddha died after eating a meal of dried boar's flesh in the home of Kunda the smith. Perhaps the most striking thing about him was his combination of a cool head and a warm heart, a blend that chilled him from sentimentality on the one hand and indifference on the other. He was undoubtedly one of the greatest rationalists of all times. Socially, the Buddha's royal lineage and upbringing were a great advantage. Fine in presence, he moved among kings with ease, for he had been one of them. Yet his poise and sophistication seems not to have distanced him from simple villagers. There was indeed an amazing simplicity about this man before whom kings bowed. Even when his reputation was at its highest, he would be seen begging, bowl in hand, walking through the streets and alleys with the patience of one who knows the illusion of time. Notwithstanding his own objectivity toward himself, there was constant pressure during his lifetime to turn him into a god. He rebuffed all this categorically, insisting that he was a human in every respect. He made no attempt to conceal his temptations and weaknesses, how difficult it had been to attain enlightenment, how narrow the margin by which he had won through, how fallible he still remained. He confessed that if there had been another tribe as powerful as sex, he would never have made the great. He admitted that the month when he was first alone in the forest had brought him to the brink of mortal terror. One of the most beautiful instances about how he rejected the caste system is when he was encountering with Sunata, the flower savenger, a man so low in the social scale that the only employment he could find was picking over discarded bouquets to find an occasional blossom that might be parted to still his hunger. When the Buddha arrived one day at the place where he was sorting through refuse, Sunata's heart was filled with awe and joy, finding no place to hide, for he was an outcast. He stood as if stuck to the wall, saluting with clasped hands. The Buddha marked the conditions of sainthood in the heart of Sunata, shining like a lamp within a jar, and drew near, saying, Sunata, what to you is this wretched mode of living? Can you endure to leave the world? Sunata, experiencing the rapture of one who has been sprinkled with ambrosia, said, If such as I may become a monk of yours, may the exalted one suffer me to come forth. He became a renowned member of the order.